Welcome to Skim This. Who's excited for some good medical news? We'll skim a major development in the fight against malaria. Then, we'll explain what went down with the Facebook whistleblower this week, a federal judge blocking Texas's abortion ban, and why wealthy people around the world are stashing their money in South Dakota. Later, tech companies are in a war for your attention at work, and Microsoft came to flex with notifications. After that, you're scared to be the person that brings the league down. We'll talk to a former National Women's Soccer League player about allegations of abuse and misconduct by coaches. And we'll wrap things up with a look at the TV show everyone's talking about. Squid Game. Squid Game. Squid Game. And what that says about us. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. All right, let's get to some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, we've got a medical headline that, shocker, isn't about COVID-19. The dream of a malaria vaccine has been a long-held but unattainable dream. Today, the RTSS malaria vaccine, more than 30 years in the making, changes the course of public health history. Here's the context. Malaria is one of the world's oldest diseases and kills over 400,000 people each year, 95% of whom are in Africa. But in a historic move this week, the World Health Organization backed the world's first malaria vaccine for children. Health experts are calling this move a game changer, since kids under five are the most vulnerable to malaria, and in 2019, made up more than two-thirds of malaria deaths worldwide. Other experts are raising some flags over the vaccine's efficacy rate, which is way lower than the efficacy of other vaccines for polio and measles. And doctors are still recommending people use other malaria protections, like medications and bed nets treated with insecticide. Still, despite some unknowns about this new vaccine, we're down to celebrate a scientific breakthrough that could be a really effective tool against a deadly disease. Okay, next headline. After Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp went down on Monday, you'd think Mark Zuckerberg's week couldn't get any worse. Until Tuesday. Almost no one outside of Facebook knows what happens inside of Facebook. The company intentionally hides vital information from the public, from the U.S. government, and from governments around the world. I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people. Here's the context. There was a spicy hearing on Capitol Hill this week when Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen told lawmakers just how bad she thinks Facebook's behavior really is. Haugen is also the one who released private internal documents to The Wall Street Journal. And this week, she spilled more tea to lawmakers, alleging that... The company does the bare minimum to remove misinformation and harmful content. That Facebook execs valued profits above basically everything else, like safety and user privacy. That Facebook has doubled down on trying to convert young people to its platforms, despite knowingly promoting anorexia content and other harmful material. That different countries, like Iran and China, used Facebook to spy on people. Oh, and that Facebook contributed to the January 6th riot at the Capitol. That's quite a list. But is any of that bad behavior actually illegal? 
Haugen did allege that Facebook broke the law by hiding research about its ability to cause harm from investors and the public. And she's now reportedly filed eight complaints with the SEC, hoping the financial regulator will peek under Facebook's hood. But beyond that, it also looks like Dems and Republicans are pretty united in wanting to regulate the tech giant. Proposed legislative solutions could include revising a law called Section 230, which essentially shields internet companies from being responsible for what users post. Another proposed bipartisan measure would reportedly allow citizens to sue social media companies for the harm they cause. Still, thanks to Schoolhouse Rock, we know how long it takes for a bill to become a law on Capitol Hill, so we're not holding our breath. Next up, we're heading to Texas, where a federal judge has blocked the state's new anti-abortion law. The context here is important. A few weeks ago, the DOJ asked a federal judge in Texas to put a temporary hold on the near-total ban on abortion that went into effect last month. And this week, that judge said, yeah, this has got to stop. He called the law an aggressive scheme to rob citizens of their constitutional right to get an abortion. So now, the law's on hold. Kind of. Technically, those who've been afraid to get an abortion now have a window of opportunity to get medical care. But there are reports that doctors could still be wary of providing an abortion because the judge's ban is only temporary. Plus, the Texas Attorney General has already filed an appeal to the same circuit court that approved the whole abortion ban in the first place. So that window of opportunity may end up being pretty slim. And our final headline. A leak of nearly 12 million financial documents, these are called the Pandora Papers, have revealed where many world leaders and other wealthy figures are allegedly hiding their billions from tax authorities. Okay, rich people doing sketchy stuff with their money is nothing new. But what is new is that some unexpected places in the U.S. have been revealed to be some of the biggest tax havens in the world. Step aside tropical islands or the Swiss Alps. Hello, Mount Rushmore. That's right. The Pandora Papers revealed that South Dakota and honorable mention states like Texas and Florida have become some of the top tax havens for rich people to hide their money. That's mostly done using things called trusts, which are protected by super favorable tax laws in the state, like no income tax or no estate tax. Now, some people are pretty pissed that South Dakota is helping some of the wealthiest people around the world keep their money hidden, including people who've been accused of committing financial crimes or wrongdoing. Some online petitions and articles are even saying South Dakota should be abolished. We won't go that far, but when you need a good fun fact for your plans this weekend, telling them South Dakota is basically the next Cayman Islands might take the cake. Hey, skimmers, before we get back to the show, we wanted to tell you about another podcast from Goop. Every week, Goop's founder and CEO, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Erica Chidi, CEO and co-founder of Loom, take turns hosting a conversation with the brightest thinkers and culture changers. Listen to intimate and informative conversations with guests like Esther Perel and Alicia Keys to learn something new and gain a new perspective to use in your daily life. You can follow and listen to the Goop podcast wherever you listen. All right, let's get back to the show. 
Next up, we've got the skim on three business stories that could have a serious impact on your wallet. Starting with the United States Postal Service. We didn't think 2021 would be the year we'd learn the name of the Postmaster General, but here we are. Postmaster Louis DeJoy, who you may remember from that mail-in voting drama last year, has been looking to cut costs and raise revenue for the Postal Service. And starting last week, those cost-cutting measures went into effect. And even if you aren't USPS's accountant, this impacts you, because mail service around the country is about to get slower. This is year one of a 10-year plan the USPS calls Delivering for America. It claims it will modernize the entire operation. Apparently, in this case, modern means slower. The Postal Service is trying to move away from using pricey planes and rely on ground transportation to deliver your mail, which you can probably guess makes snail mail even slower. Now, if you're sending something via first-class mail, like letters, bills, or tax documents, it could take up to five days to get delivered. That's up from three. Not to mention, on top of slowing mail delivery to cut costs, the USPS's revenue-boosting strategy involves literally charging you more for less. During this peak holiday season, from October through December, the cost of sending something priority mail, for instance, is going to increase anywhere from $0.25 cents for envelopes to $5 for heavier packages. And the Postal Service says there's more of this coming, and it's going to start revising rates more frequently throughout the year. So budget a little more for shipping, and get things shipped for birthdays, weddings, or the holidays earlier than you think you need to. And one final thing to note. This mail slowdown is going to have a serious impact on people in rural areas. The USPS is mandated to deliver anywhere in the U.S., which its competitors like UPS and FedEx don't have to do. The Postal Service has been called a lifeline for rural and indigenous communities, making sure they have access to mail service. So a major slowdown could mean rural communities will become increasingly more isolated. Another thing you might need to start budgeting for is ride-sharing. Throughout the pandemic, it's felt like Uber and Lyft prices skyrocketed. And as more people returned to meeting friends or grabbing dinner, longer wait times also became a thing. According to one set of data, this has been happening across the country. In August, the average Uber and Lyft ride in New York City cost almost 40% more than a ride in a yellow cab. In Chicago, rideshare prices were reportedly up nearly 50% compared to 2019 prices. Ridesharing companies say they've had to charge more because of driver shortages. But according to the Wall Street Journal, what might have seemed like a temporary price increase to keep cars on the road might be here to stay. That's because there still aren't enough drivers to match rider demand. Plus, Uber and Lyft are trying to make money, and they don't want to pay drivers from their own piggy banks to keep driving. They'd rather put the cost on you, the rider. And now that they've seen that riders are willing to pay extra, they're not exactly rushing to end surge pricing, if we can even call it that anymore. All of which means it might be time to give good old-fashioned taxis a second chance. And the final thing you might want to add to your budget spreadsheet is gas. This morning, the Natural Gas Supply Association said that between high demand and a number of X factors, exports remain a wild card, as does weather. Natural gas will likely become an even hotter commodity in the coming months as temperatures plunge and people try to stay warm. According to one forecast, U.S. heating bills could be 30% higher this winter compared with last winter. 
If you're not stoked about paying a lot more to stay warm, experts suggest now might be a good time to change the filter on your furnace or invest in a smart thermostat. Remember this? Oh, the startup sound of Windows 98. Well, now it's time to start getting used to this. Microsoft just unveiled Windows 11, the latest version of its PC operating system, along with an update to Microsoft Office. It wasn't flashy like an iPhone launch, but it was a big move in the war for your attention at work, a war you and your mind are a part of, even if you didn't realize it. Microsoft used to be the only superpower around, but over the years, the battle lines have changed. Our lives have changed in a couple ways. Number one, browser is now home base, right? Not the desktop. And number two, if you can't share it, does it even exist? That's Alexandra Samuel. She's a frequent contributor to The Wall Street Journal and the author of Remote Inc., How to Thrive at Work Wherever You Are. She recently asked people in her network where they started first drafts of new documents. A decade ago, she thinks the answer would have been Microsoft Word. But now... Google Docs. The number of people who are using Gmail as the keys to their life is super tough to beat. There's so many people who are used to doing so much in Google, even when they're otherwise living within the Microsoft ecosystem, that... The experience of collaboration in Word and Excel is going to have to be so much more robust than the experience of using Google that it's going to make people change a very ingrained habit, and that's a tall order. Samuel says another shift in work culture Microsoft is responding to is messaging. Slack had the early lead there, but with $130 billion of cash in the bank, Microsoft can surely figure something out, right? Let's fire up Windows 11 and the new Microsoft Office to see how they did. Aside from that new jingle, a gentler color palette, and more rounded edges, Samuel says the biggest thing Microsoft's done is put Microsoft Teams collaboration tools front and center pretty much everywhere. So get ready to start receiving Teams message alerts right from your desktop. Or invitations to join a call to review a document from within that document. That may sound like no big deal, but Samuel says for Microsoft, it's like finding the final piece of a puzzle. Because what do remote workers need on a daily basis? We need email. We need real-time group messaging. We need video meetings and calls. We need document collaboration and spreadsheet collaboration. And Office is the platform that offers all of those in a really viable way. Otherwise, you're piecing together Gmail, Google Docs, Slack and Zoom or Google Meet. But, you know, there's no Google equivalent of Slack, really. So this is the only one-stop shop. Our brains hurt hearing all of those names. So maybe having one work software company to rule them all makes sense. But if you're also anxious, imagining Teams alerts tracking you down everywhere, Samuel says companies like Microsoft know it's bad for business when everyone associates their brand with mind-numbing alerts. That's one reason Microsoft and Google let you schedule when emails are sent, regardless of when they're written, or why Slack has an option for users to set hours to mute notifications. 
Though there is a limit to what software companies can do on your behalf. We all miss our colleagues. We all miss collaboration. And also, we're all being driven completely bananas by the nonstop interruptions of video calls, email, and so on. And so we are essentially asking for tools that keep us constantly connected while also preserving our clarity and peace of mind. And that contradiction can't be resolved by software. So as new work software from Microsoft and others makes it even easier to receive notifications 24-7, it's more important than ever to talk to your manager or your team about how to navigate that. After all, what good is Microsoft's Do Not Disturb feature if your boss will just judge you for using it? What those features can't do is make sure you have an organizational culture in which we value focus, we value respect for downtime, We have to recognize that our brains are wired to hit the bar like a little rat to get the email pellet over and over. And as often as you hit that bar, the more you reinforce that wiring in your brain and the more compulsive you're going to be about checking email, checking teams. And at the end of the day, you know, there's no software that can save us. We have to take some control over our own wiring and make really conscious decisions about how to use the technology and then lean on the features of the platform that make that easier. You don't realize that you're not protected until something happens and you're not protected. That's Haley Kottmeyer, a former professional soccer player who last played in 2019. I played five seasons for the Seattle Reign, two seasons for the Orlando Pride. Kottmeyer, who now works at the media network Just Women Sports, said she's surprised, but also not surprised, about why the National Women's Soccer League is in the news this week. The National Women's Soccer League has suspended all of its weekend matches amid allegations of abuse. The commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League has stepped down. Continued fallout after a bombshell report accused a former head coach of sexual harassment and misconduct. Last week, the sports publication The Athletic published an investigation into the behavior of Paul Riley, the then head coach of the North Carolina Courage, one of the NWSL's 10 teams and one of its most successful ones. Athletic writer Meg Linehan spoke to more than a dozen players who'd been coached by Riley at various teams over more than a decade. According to them, Riley reportedly pressured players to drink alcohol, lured them to his hotel room, and emotionally manipulated them. One player, Sinead Farrelly, said that she'd been coerced into having sex with Riley on more than one occasion. A second player, Mana Shim, also went on the record, saying Riley coerced Shim and Farrelly into kissing in front of him in his apartment, allegedly threatening the team with a harsher training the next day if they didn't comply, and sending both players unsolicited photos of himself in his underwear. Both Farrelly and Shim have since retired. They say they chose to speak up because they want better policies for current players. Riley denies those incidents took place, But the same day that the allegations became public, the Courage fired Riley. The league's commissioner also stepped down. It fired its general legal counsel, and at the request of the Players' Union, it canceled five games that were due to take place last weekend. 
The allegations against Riley are the most detailed to come to light this year, but he's actually the third coach to be fired since August following accusations of misconduct from players. That's 30% of the league's head coaches. The former player we talked to, Haley Kottmeyer, says one reason problematic behavior can become so widespread is that instead of abusive coaches being banned from ever coaching again, it's too easy for them to just be moved to a different team. That's what happened to Riley after he was dismissed from the Portland Thorns in 2015. You think about Monar, you think about Sinead, and they report an abuser, and then within five months, that same man is hired back into the league. From an organizational standpoint, how could they have felt safe and secure and protected? Allegations against coaches are coming to light now in part because back in April, the NWSL introduced anti-harassment policies for the first time ever. I think sometimes, and it, it happens more than you kind of would like with the NWSL, that you feel like something kind of happens way too far after the fact. You know, I... I really believe that obviously that is a great thing to have, but you know, how do you go five, six, seven years of a league with no formal HR, no formal reporting line or anything like that? While it is a great step, I think that was something that, you know, when it happened, that was something very much the players collectively were like, okay, good, but this should have been here the whole time. While Kottmeyer's glad these guidelines have finally been introduced, she says the profession is set up in a way that leaves players vulnerable. For one, players have non-guaranteed contracts. So at any point, you could walk into a room, doesn't matter what point it is in the season, and your coach could say, actually, you're, you're gone. And it happens all the time. Second, while the NWSL salaries are often really low, like under $30,000 per year, playing pro soccer is, for many NWSL athletes, their dream job. And even if they wanted to leave the league for another women's pro soccer league in England, France, or Spain, the pay there is barely any better and would require leaving behind their families. And that ties into the third reason Kottmeyer says some players have been hesitant to speak up about the abuse in the NWSL. They want to protect a league that lets them live and compete in the U.S. at a time when soccer is gaining popularity. While the NWSL has been around since 2012, it only managed to get games on broadcast TV for the first time last year. Not to mention, some high-profile people started investing, like Naomi Osaka, Serena Williams, and Chelsea Clinton. With the NWSL's future on the line, Kottmeyer says players know that damage to the league's reputation could mean damage to their own careers. I do think that inherent belief got built in because I think I have it that, you know, we're part of the growing pains and we're part of the process and we should be grateful and, you know, oh, they're doing everything we can. It just creates this culture of you're scared to speak up. You're scared to lose your job. You're scared to be the person that brings the league down. Though she's hopeful that things might finally be turning around. The NWSL announced last week that there will be mandatory background checks for all team and league staff. The league is also introducing a secure, anonymous platform for players to report abuse. Plus, the Players Union is currently negotiating their first-ever collective bargaining agreement. That agreement could mean better salaries and killing off an archaic rule that prevents players from having a say in which teams they signed with. Kottmeyer hopes that despite the league being in the news for the wrong reasons now, this attention on women's soccer in the U.S. will actually bring more fans to the game. 
think you have a game where very few people are there for the money, right? You have people that are there because they genuinely have done this their whole lives. They love to compete. They've sacrificed everything to be there. And every time you watch them play, you see that. They tackle hard. They put everything on the line. They play like truly the purest and most competitive form of the game. It's genuinely fun to watch. The product speaks for itself. It is a phenomenon. Squid Game has a rare 100% critics rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and it's number one in 90 countries. In case you missed it, basically the whole world is watching the same TV show right now, Squid Game. The South Korean Netflix thriller is on track to become the streaming platform's biggest TV hit ever. So, for the sake of our group chats and office small talk, we wanted to break down why is Squid Game so popular right now. For some help, we called up Han Nguyen, the senior editor of culture for Salon.com. Han, welcome to the show. I want to start by giving you a little bit of a challenge. Can you skim the premise of Squid Game for us? Basically, we meet our hero, Gi Hun. He's sort of a middle-aged guy. He's stealing from his mom so he can gamble at the racetrack. And he gets a mysterious card that says, if you need more money, go ahead and try this. And so he follows the instructions after he calls, ends up in a van, and everyone in the van ends up in a giant dormitory where they're told that if they play a game, they can win a whole lot of money. This is not a spoiler because it's in the trailer. So this is the premise where... Basically, they get to play a game of red light, green light. And every time the red light shows, then they have to stop. But if they don't stop completely, if they move, then they get shot. This is unexpected for all of these people. They just thought they were going to play a game and have a chance at money. At that point, they realize the stakes, there's panic. But then there's also greed involved because the more people that die, the bigger the pot is that they ultimately can have a chance of winning. So it's basically like Hunger Games in a way. Yeah, in a way. I think Hunger Games, because it was set in a dystopia, it feels a little bit removed and fantastical. This is set in contemporary South Korea. Everyone's just doing normal things. They don't get to have like really cool weapons. They just wear green tracksuits. And I think the money aspect could be compared to Hunger Games because each of the people involved with Hunger Games come from poverty and each of the districts. And so they get a chance at winning some like great experience in the capital. Here it's money, which is hopefully pulling them out of debt because every single one of them decides to stay in this game, even after the bloodshed, because they need the money that badly. What makes this show so striking? Is it the visuals? Is it the characters? I think they do a pretty good job of showing a wide range of characters because of the way it's written and the acting. Each of the characters are very compelling. Their backstories show the different ways that they've come into debt. And some of it is just coming from another country and trying to work and find the good life in South Korea, as you see with one person, Ali. So I think you can attach yourself to any of these characters and identify with them. How does this show, though, represent the anxieties and desperation of millennials in particular in South Korea? I know there's a debt crisis in the country, but, you know, how does this show 
represent people's fears. While I do mention that a lot of people are in debt, and to be clear, a lot of these players are not necessarily millennials. Only some of them are. But I think it's something even that Americans can identify with because since everyone is in debt and this game itself is built on a predatory capitalism where people getting ahead and doing underhanded things such as stealing from clients or maybe undermining unions is expected. And so same with in the game breaking whatever rules they thought they had, killing people outside of the gaming. You know, there are a lot of things that you can do to take advantage of the gameplay in order to get more money. So I think there is this idea of, yes, it's horrible and it's bloody, but there is an unfairness in the world when it comes to how people talk about capitalism. Like, it's not that everyone gets an equal share or equal chance at it just because you say that they do. People come from different backgrounds. They have different advantages. And of course, the people up at the top in the in the corporations have a lot more power than you do. So yeah, I think it preys on their fears that way because at least here in, in a way, it's visceral. It's out in the open. And I'm curious when you think about this becoming an international hit and you also think about what's going on in the world in that people are frustrated with billionaires going to space or tech giants playing God when, you know, you can't get a house for your own family. Do you think these real issues that people take with wealth disparity in the United States and all over the world are relevant in the context of Squid Game? That's definitely part of it. I think it's also the last year and a half that we've lived in. The effects of, you know, coronavirus and lockdown has emphasized the gap and what people don't have and also what they're not allowed to get access to when it comes to that disparity. So in a way, it's comforting, as odd as that sounds, comforting to see something that really shows how unequal things are. Han, thank you so much. Thank you. If you like Squid Game or are interested in this, it turns out there's a whole world of similar content out there, more and more of which seems to be getting produced each year, from shows like Alice in Borderland to movies like Snowpiercer or The Platform. If you're looking for your next binge watch, we've left a link to recommendations in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. We had help this week from Sajin Coriellis. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas. And Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. And until then, check out our other podcast, 9 to 5-ish with The Skim, where we're talking all things career. Follow it wherever you listen to your podcasts.